In some of your um, Bibles, depending on your translation, uh, you may uh, see this particular psalm uh, sort of given the title or the prefix or something like that, deliverance in battle. And if you read through this entire psalm, again, it's only nine verses, this psalm it really has this tenor and, and tone that's suited for someone or some, uh, some group of people on the eve of battle, so to speak. You can kind of imagine uh, some folks of Israel, some captains and all of their men sort of coming around this particular psalm and encircling themselves and encouraging themselves with this liturgy of sorts as they prepare to go into war. And in fact, some historians and Bible scholars believe that that's exactly what this psalm is, is sort of a church liturgy, if you will, for an army as they prepare for conflict with verses 1 through 5, sort of representing the prayer that the priest or the people pray on behalf of the king and his men as they plead for victory. With verse 6, sort of serving as the king, the anointed, as it says there, being uh, sort of affirmed and, and, and assured that the Lord is his strength. That serves as his confidence as he goes into conflict. With the people likewise echoing the same in verses 7 and 8. Sort of this chorus of trust that they have in the name of the Lord. With the last verse, verse 9, sort of serving as this benediction for the people in the army of the Lord as they go into battle. Knowing that victory is found only in that Lord. Indeed, I can think... Very easily that this is a psalm that David prayed in many of the conflicts with which he was engaged. Many of the battles that you read about that David entered all throughout First and Second Samuel. This could have been, might have been something that he uh, used as part of the ceremony that he would conduct perhaps before conflict. And the central focus, of course, being that the, that the victory and the triumph that comes for the people of God comes from their God himself. Not the king's might, not the king's hands, not the king's men, not the king's abilities, not the king's tactics or his strategies or his military ability, his acumen for making certain forces move in other certain places, not his chariots, not his horses. Not any of those things. In fact, this whole prayer, this whole psalm is an anthem reminding the king and all those who serve him where their victory lies. And it comes from the Lord himself. So this, you could say, was a humbling ceremony. A ceremony that might not be like the rousing ceremonies you see in movies where the captain of his army will come and rally his men around their grit and their strength and their fortitude. Actually, this is a ceremony that says, Lord, we surrender our hands into your, into your, we surrender our spirit into your hands. Yet throughout that humility, that Captains and armies might have as David and his men prayed these particular words. They were instilled with a far greater hope than any sort of courage or fortitude or bravery or valor that they might have within themselves. Instead, they are imbued with the hope of heaven. This is, we could say, the believer's battle cry. Indeed, that's what Martin Luther likes to call this particular song. 
A song that was sung perhaps at the outbreak of literal war as King David led the Israelites into conflict. And yet, I think despite that, despite how perhaps literal the battle imagery might be for this particular psalm, I think the truths that it puts forward for us are something that we can likewise put into practice in our spiritual warfare. The truths are true For us, yes, as we engage in the conflicts of our daily lives, as we go about our lives, engage with a battle every single day, every single hour, perhaps every single minute. This indeed is the believer's battle cry. And I want to go through it this morning and see again where our victory lies. So firstly, let's see three things in the psalm tonight. Firstly, number one, the plea for victory. The plea for victory. Notice verse 1 again as we begin in the same place where David's liturgy begins. The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend thee. Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Remember all thy burnt offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice. Selah. Again, You remember perhaps from other psalms that word Selah is perhaps a musical word. A term that denotes a pause, an interruption, a break in the action. If you're being musical about it, it's a rest. A time when all of the instruments and all of the musicians make no sound. And there's a break in the musical score. And yet here David puts a break right here as they're petitioning, requesting. Not only for the Lord to hear them, but for the Lord, the God of Jacob, their covenant father and God to defend them. And indeed that's their petition. Lord, come to our aid. Lord, answer is what that word here means. Answer us in the day of our adversity, our trouble, and be our defense. You can very well see how this particular psalm would make for a very good liturgy for any church. And indeed, I I would say that this has very much the makings of a church service. With all those who are praying these words or coming into the attendance of these words... Entering the sanctuary and pleading for help, as he says there, from the sanctuary itself. And I think that's why we're here, is it not? I find it fascinating that we teach our kids to sing about serving in the Lord's army. Remember that song in Sunday school? I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. (laughs) Maybe you don't remember that. I don't know. Maybe you don't remember that song. I won't sing the rest. Um, I, I think it was Braxton, though, was singing that song in the car the other day, talking about shooting the artillery and flying the, um, or riding in the cavalry. Anyways, uh, we teach our kids that song, that we're in the Lord's army, and they sing that song, and it's kind of cute when they come and sing that. And yet, I think, how interesting is it that we barely remember that when we become adults? <laughs> We don't often consider, perhaps, that that enlistment in the Lord's army hasn't come to an end. There's no end date on that enlisting in the Lord's army. You're still there. You're still among the ranks. If you who are uh, part of the church and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord, you are, yes, still a part of that army that we sing about. And though, yes, as Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle, as he says, against principalities and powers and against rulers and of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The point remains the same. 
We are in a real conflict with a real enemy. This day of trouble that here the psalmist is describing, this day of war, perhaps even yes, is still real for us. We are in a battle with the enemy, the enemy who wants to bring us down. He doesn't want us to see even little victories that we have in our lives. He would rather us be defeated. He would rather us be despondent that the conflict is too great. And such is why I think this opening sort of salvo serves so well for us. That our only hope, likewise, as was this army's, our only hope comes, as it says there, out of Zion. Our only source of defense, our only answer in the day of adversity, as he says, comes from the sanctuary. From out of heaven's sort of citadel itself. That's where our defense is. Again, he says, the Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. The name of God defend thee, send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. This is where our defense lies. As he says, in heaven, out of Zion. That's why our defense is strong and sturdy. Whatever distress, whatever trouble we might face. And here, notice how they're attempting or perhaps putting their faith and how this defense is made sure. As he notes in verse 3, the offerings and the sacrifices that they were duly bound to make in the temple, in the tabernacle. These sacrifices, as we might know, are sort of a token for their faith, the faith that they had in Jehovah. And as they were to sacrifice on that altar, it was an emblem. It was a sign of the faith that they were putting in the atonement that Yahweh would work out. In our day, our faith is similarly evidenced by obedience and adherence to the word of the Lord. And it's similarly evidenced by our sacrifice in this house. And yet, the meaning is a little different. Because we come into this house, into this sanctuary, if you will, uh, pleading for victory, yes. Pleading for triumph against the foe, albeit with an infinitely better sacrifice as our assurance. Those in David's day, referencing and alluding to Hebrews chapter 9 perhaps, they were offering the blood of goats and calves on that altar. That was the token of their faith and their sacrifice. We plead something better. We plead the blood of Christ, as the writer to the Hebrews says, which secures for us a promise of internal inheritance. That's our plea. As we approach the conflict and the struggles of our daily lives, our spiritual warfare, if you will, we do so as those who plead for victory that has already been won. This is the great sort of reversal. Of the plea that we make here in church every single Sunday. Every single time we cross the threshold of church. Perhaps even every time we bow our knees and fold our hands and pray. We do so on the basis of a victory that's already been achieved. There's nothing more sure or more certain than what we plead as those who are covered in Christ's blood. The plea for victory is certain. Which leads me to, secondly, the promise of victory. The promise of victory. And again, this is, again, noting this 
sort of reversal of what we might think of when we come desperate for this plea of victory. It's that truth that the victory has already been won in the Lord Jesus. And I think this is sort of the gist of the king's response and the people's response of their worshipful, worshipful sort of response in verse number four. Notice he says, grant thee according to thine own heart and fulfill all thy counsel. We will rejoice in thy salvation. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. You see, after praying for victory, in this sort of liturgy, we might say, of these captains and men preparing for conflict, they respond with this joyful chorus of the victory that they know and that they believe is with their Lord, the Lord who stands over them as a banner. And what's more, this salvation, this victory is already achieved as he says there in verse number six, now I know that the Lord saveth his anointed. It's in the past tense. It's a tense of the verb that means it's already certain. It's already sure. It's already been secured. This is the posture of the church. This is the posture of you and I as we believe in these words and trust unfailingly in the spirit of God who fills us. We trust likewise in a victory that's already certain. Salvation that's already finished. That's the station we take up. Our place on the battlefield is not as those who are uncertain of what's going to come about during the conflict. We are not those who are wringing our hands, hoping, sort of praying, and and yes, even perhaps imagining that this conflict won't go our way. We, who believe in Jesus' name, are more than conquerors, as Paul says, but we believe that that is so right now. Where you sit right now, you are more than conquerors. And I think that's sometimes hard to believe as we go about our daily lives. We... Think of the ways we've struggled. We think of the ways that perhaps in this spiritual warfare that we have in ourselves and in our souls. We think of the ways that we failed in those little skirmishes. We haven't lived up to the things that we have promised. We've failed to make certain steps. As we've sort of made these promises to God. I'm going I'm to read my Bible more. I'm going to be more active in some such ministry. And yet things seem to always get in the way. You know, often I think our spiritual warfare is often one that feels defeating. Because we think we're the ones lifting the swords. Whether we're the ones that have to. That we're the ones who have to find some inner valor among ourselves. In order to engage in this conflict with the flesh and the devil. My friends, right now you are a conqueror over, yes, sin, death, hell, and the grave. Not because of you, but because of who you trust in. Because of who won the battle already. And his name is Jesus Christ. 
The Lord, who is our banner, he's the one, yes, right now, who allows and, and, yes, enables you to wage a successful warfare because the fight has already been won. Jesus won. I always go back to that because it was one of my Bible school teachers who, who first sort of clued me in on that sort of simple phrase to summarize the whole Bible in two words, Jesus wins. And he's already won. You could even put it in the past tense. That's how certain our faith is of who this Jesus is, of how valiant he is in battle. Jesus won. The devil, he's already defeated. He's already a dead enemy, a foe that has no power over you. See, again, this is leaning into this idea of spiritual warfare that. We are fighting against a foe that, is a, is a, that walks around as a roaring lion, yes. A roaring lion that makes a lot of noise. But that lion is actually very comedic. You know why? Because he's a lion who is declawed and defanged. He has no power. He has no ability to snatch you out of God's hands. He can just make a lot of noise. He can make a lot of ruckus. <laughs> But my friends, the foe is defeated because Jesus conquered him. He trampled him under his heel, as was the promise in Genesis 3, that the serpent was bruised his heel, but that heel would come down and crush the head of that serpent, who is Satan. And yes, my friends, this is Jesus. He is the victor. The promise of victory is already certain. The victory is ours before even a single blow of battle has ever been struck. You know, that's why we can sing victory in Jesus with so much sort of uh, passion and gusto. Because we have victory in Jesus. We have it now where we sit as we are. As we are in this life, we have it. We're not fighting for it. We're fighting from it. Imagine how how much that changes the way we engage our spiritual lives. We're not scratching and clawing for something that we have to get by ourselves, by our fortitude, by our spiritual disciplines and strength. We're fighting from that. It's been given to us in the death of Christ himself. That's what our faith is in. That's why our faith is so certain and sure. Luther comments on this particular spot. In this psalm, he says, quote, It belongs to faith only to sing the triumphal song before the victory is gained and to make the proclamation before the salvation is worked out. You see, that's what makes this psalm so amazing. Here, as put yourself into the minds of perhaps King David, and he's praying the psalm. And in verses 1 through 5, he's just observed as the people and the priests perhaps have prayed this petition for victory. And he comes perhaps out of the sanctuary and he prays verse 6. I know that the Lord will save his anointed. And in fact, he changes it when he speaks this word of proclamation to his people. That now I know the Lord, he has saved his anointed already. That's this victory. He is so convinced of Yahweh's salvation that he depicts it as it having already occurred. It's already happened. It's that certain. 
You know, this is something that the Old Testament is riddled with. Instance after instance of the Lord of hosts guaranteeing victory for his people before they ever even lift a finger. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want you to see this quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want you to see a couple of these examples just to get into your mind's eye exactly how the Lord delivers his people. Yes, before they even lift a finger. Deuteronomy 7, look at verse 23. But the Lord thy God shall deliver them unto thee and shall destroy them with a mighty destruction until they be destroyed. And he shall deliver their kings unto thy hand and thou shalt destroy their name from under heaven. And there shall no man be able to stand before thee until thou have destroyed them. This is how certain his deliverance is. This is how certain God is of guaranteeing victory for those who are his. No man's going to be able to stand against you. No one's going to be able to withstand you. No matter who they are, you will be delivered out of your hands, out of their hands. Go with me to Joshua. Joshua chapter 10. He echoes the same sort of promise in a very particular way to the people of God, in, uh, particularly to the captain of the host, Joshua. Notice what he says. Joshua 10, look at verse 8. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thy hand. And there shall not a man of them stand before thee. The army in this particular instance, if you remember, we preached this a couple of months ago, perhaps last year, I can't remember. But if you remember, the army in chapter 10 of Joshua is, a, is an axis of powers that's made up of five separate confederate kings. And they come together in this league against the people of Israel. And yet, what does God say? Not a man of them is going to stand. That's how certain and sure the victory is. And on we could go throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But the the gist of it is this. That those who trust in the name of the Lord can be confident of their victory. Because of who their Lord is. And such is why, as the king prays in verse 6, the people echo that trust in verses 7 and 8 back in our text. Psalm 20 verse 7. Some trust in chariots. And some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. They reassert this confidence. Over and above any chariot army. Any cavalry that the enemy might have and boast in. They, they claim, are boasting in the name of the Lord. Chariots, of course, were the dominant war machines of the time. That was a nation's pride. Its pride and the way it, it was sort of to able to assert its formidable power would be to boast in how many chariots it would be able to cart out on the battlefield. Perhaps today we might insert in there some trust in politicians and nuclear power. But we trust and remember the name of the Lord. And the point remains the same. Some trust in the economy. But we remember the name of the Lord. 
And the point remains the same. That anything that man might boast in, any device, any warhorse, any machine of confidence or strength is as nothing compared to this Lord, this Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, who is far better and stronger than anything that comes up against his people. He is one among us, one among our ranks. So therefore this promise of victory is so certain because of who we stand with. The Lord of heaven is for us, giving us, lastly, the person of victory. This, I think, is the climax of this believer's battle cry. That the one that we are standing with, that the one who stands with us in this battle, wherever that battle may look like for you, we are standing in and with this one who stands with and for us. Notice verse number 9, save, Lord. Let the king hear us when we call. This petition that closes out this particular psalm is a benediction, sort of reminding the people of who it is, where their victory lies. Lord, you are the one who could deliver. That's what they're praying. That's what this clothing, closing anthem serves to summarize this whole entire petition, this whole promise. It's directed to this person, this Lord of hosts, this Lord of lords and King of kings, this Lord Jehovah. That's where their victory is. Lord, deliver, save. He is the person behind the victory. The person behind it is none other than Yahweh, the King of kings himself. There's no victory outside of him. There's no victory without him. And such is why David here emphasizes the name of the Lord as the source of his victory. Notice again verse 1. The Lord hear thee in the day of, in the na- the day of trouble. The name of, God, of the God of Jacob defend thee. Notice verse 5. We will rejoice in thy salvation. And in the name of our God we will set up our banners. Notice verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord. The name of God. That's what functioned as his stronghold, his refuge, the place of reinforcement. It was in God's name. Invoking this name means that we clutch and cling to all that it signifies. We find victory in it. We find strength in it. We find help in the one who is our victory and our strength. And the one who comes to our aid and offers himself as our help. That's what this banner means. The banner of the name of the Lord means that the Lord himself is all these things for us. And notice just how often David prays these particular prayers. This idea of trusting in the name of the Lord. Notice, just flip a page back to Psalm 18. Psalm 18, look at verse 2. The Lord is my rock and fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust. My buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. 
I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. He's calling upon the Lord who is all these things. His rock, his fortress, his deliverance, his strength. All these things that God is for him. That's what he's invoking when he's praying the name of this God. He does the same in Psalm 61, in Psalm 91, in Psalm 144, and in Proverbs. Continually, he prays this name and invokes this one who stands for him. And yes, even he includes that wonderful image of standing under this banner. And just like David's armies never ventured onto that battlefield without some sort of standard waving high in the sky, so too do we enter our spiritual battles standing under the banner of the Lord's name. As he says there, verse number five, we will rejoice in thy salvation. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. That banner is the name. That banner is the standard that we look to on the battlefield. You know, when armies were engaged in conflict, when they were uh, on the battlefield, they looked to that banner, that standard, that standard bearer who would wave the flag. The flag which told them of direction, of purpose, of perhaps new strategies that they would engage in while on the battlefield. If the standard bearer fell, so too would hope be likewise crushed. If the banner could be broken, so could the men who stood under it. But for you and for me, we stand and we take up our ranks. We take up our arms as we engage in our spiritual conflicts under an imperishable banner. That's what we are standing under when we pray and petition and plea for this victory out of the banner of the name of the Lord. It's a banner which cannot be broken, which cannot fall, which is everlasting. Luther says here on this point, our standard, our banner, you could say, is the word of the cross. The triumphal ensign died purple with the blood of Christ. That's what we stand under when we approach any sort of conflict on our, in our spiritual, our daily lives. When we're approaching these trials and testings of faith. We do so under that standard of the word of the cross, which is certain and sure for you and I and everyone who takes up faith in it. Which brings us to this remarkable point. It's sort of the emphasis of this entire psalm. It's this refrain that echoes throughout all of scripture that if God is for us, who could be against us? David prays this prayer several times in the Psalms. And yes, likewise, Paul prays it at the end of Romans. And this, I think, is truly the believer's battle cry. If God is for us, who can be against us? If the Lord of heaven, if the one who sits in the throne of Zion is for us and with us as we engage in conflict, why are we white-knuckling our hands over whatever conflict is in front of us? Why tremble in fear? 
My friends, we can sing this victory song, this song of triumph because of who is with us, because of who is for us. This is the prayer of the church. It's a prayer of victory that is so certain and so sure that no one can stand up against you and I on that battlefield because the battle has already been won. Christ has won the day. Save, Lord. And he already has. And he will forever. Let us pray.